Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that song today. We have uh, this Sunday and next Sunday kind of wrapping up a series before we hit a four-week series uh, called Passion, uh, heading into uh, Passion Week and uh, Easter Sunday. It's hard to believe that that's just right around the corner, but it's coming up quick. And whether you've been here or not, it's okay. I want to welcome those joining us online. But if you haven't been with us, we're on chapter 8 today, but don't think you're missing out or you, you will it's okay. They're kind of standalone messages. At the same time, there's things that build on each other, but you won't be left in the dark on those things. And kind of starting today's message off, I always like to start with something that will kind of get us going the direction that we need to go. And uh, this is the best I could come up with this week. Listen up, listen up, fellas. Hey, it's, it's lovely to get one, baby, but it's even better to get two. Go ahead and get that thing, dog. If you didn't hear Travis Kelsey's encouraged us to go ahead and get that second one, get that second ring, get that second thing. And um, uh, by the way, this is probably my last football illustration, maybe for a while, not a big XFL fan or whatever they have going on. Um, and certainly it'll be my last Chiefs illustration for a while. Uh, it's been torturous to do that. But I do love the message behind it is, hey, let's not be satisfied with one. Let's go get another one. Let's go get more. I mean, that's, uh, if it was, if two is enough, then Mahomes and Andy Reid would be retiring in this offseason. What a good idea. <laughs> well, I would love that. I think that'd be a wonderful thing that they should do. I think they should enjoy their millions and ride off into the sunset and go out on top. That's what I think they should do. I think I got... <laughs> Maybe God turned me off. I don't know. But I love the message about more. Uh, of course, Tom Brady, he wanted more. Everyone wants, they're not satisfied with one, they want more. And I want you to know something, we want more. Uh, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. Sometimes we need to be content. I mean, there's things that you should want more of. God's presence is something we should want more of. There's other things, a lot of things that we don't need more of. But let me share something this morning I believe about God. And the first thing in your notes today, God wants more. God wants more. And what he wants more of is a good thing. He wants more for you. He wants more for me. He wants more for us. He wasn't satisfied. We see in Ezra, in chapter 2, there was 50,000 Jews that returned to Jerusalem and built, and built the temple and rebuilt the temple. 50,000. I mean, most people take 50,000 and say, that's awesome. But that's just a small percentage of those who didn't return. Two million Jews. There was two million Jews. Only 50,000 returned in chapter 2. And now we're coming up on chapter 8. And there's, a, another, there's more uh, to, to return back. Been, they'd, in chapter 2 on, there had been a great victory. They'd restored the temple. They were restoring their, their homeland, their Jerusalem. They had more work to do, but man, God had given them some great victories. They were well on the path to multiple wins and multiple championships. And so now uh, Ezra is the spiritual leader of that time. You, you remember he entered into chapter 6. He wasn't there in chapter 1 through 5. He was just telling what happened. Now he wants to, be, to lead his people to experience what the first wave of people. He wanted them to experience victory. He wanted them to experience more. And I believe this, God wants more for us. He wants more for you. Uh, God, God, God's not willing that any should perish, as, as Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, I think. God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. 
We know from the words of Jesus in the parable he told about the the one lost sheep, the 99 were safe, they were all secure, they weren't lost, everything was good. 99 in most of our books is an A++. I mean, it's it's a good grade, but God wasn't satisfied. He wanted more, and so he left, he tells, Jesus tells the illustration that he left the 99 sheep to go after the one lost sheep. Jesus wants more, God wants more. God wants more for us today. I believe God wants Uh, to restore more marriages. I believe God wants to restore more families. God wants to restore more people. Now, will everyone respond? There was two million Jews. Not everyone responded. And in chapter 8, there's another kind of honor roll or or hall of fame list of those who had returned back to him. Chapter 8, Ezra leads another band of Israelites back home. Ezra was this great leader who wanted more for his people. He didn't want just the 50,000. He wanted to take more on this journey back home, on this journey back to God to experience restoration and victory. And so in chapter 8, we see Ezra recorded the family names that the same way that he did in chapter 2. Um, in the same way in, that I didn't do it in chapter 2 because it would take too much time, um, I'm not going to read all these names in chapter 8. But I don't want us to lose the importance of these names. These names were listed in the greatest book ever written or sold. Inspired by God, five billion copies have been sold worldwide, and annually 20 million Bibles are sold. It's always the number one bestseller each and every year. And these names, these names made it into God's book. I don't know about you, but any of your names make it into this, into this book? Some of you might be saying, yeah, I'm a Joshua, or I'm a Matthew, or I'm a Mark. I'm, I'm not talking a name after my name. Is your name? Was God talking about you? Is your name in here? Is your name, for that matter, in any book that's been written? Is any of us, our name's been written? Anybody have your name? It's been, it's been mentioned. It's been, there's one, there's a couple in the first service. Anybody else? Maybe a couple. Uh, my name's been mentioned in a book. It's a world bestseller, 500 copies sold worldwide, a couple sold in China, a uh, couple sold in California. That's another country, another world. Uh, there's five, this, my dad wrote this book, and it was the story of his life. I'm so thankful, actually. I joke about it, but I'm thankful for the 500 copies. He would tell you uh, 490 given away, 10 sold. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're, they're, but I'm so thankful for it because it tells the story of his life and, most importantly, about how he took a right turn on Main Street and that's where he found Jesus. I don't have time to tell you a story today, but I love to tell my dad's story of the gift of the journey. That's the name of his book, The Gift of the Journey. My, my name's written in that book, at least. Your names may not be, but the good news today is all of our names can be written in the most important book. All of our names can be written in the Lamb's book of life. If we trust and put our faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, we can have our names in the most important book. I don't want us to forget that today, but today in chapter 8, like chapter 2, at the beginning of it, it's a reminder of all those who had been brought back and and who were faithful to answer God's call. And if you want a a title for the message today, if you want to sum up all of chapter 8, it's about God's faithfulness and the faithfulness of his people. So I'm just calling it faithfulness. Faithfulness is a beautiful thing. It's a a beautiful thing when we've received faithfulness. In Ezra chapter 8, verse 1, I'm just going to reset this up. These are the family heads of those who registered with him who came with me, that's Ezra, from Babylon during the reign of King Arzertes. 
that was the start. Now, chapter, now verses 2 through 14 are just all those names of those family heads making up the list of God's honor roll of those who responded to his call. These names honored for their faithfulness. I want us to remember, too, are, their only faithfulness is because of God's faithfulness. And any faithfulness we have is only because of God's faithfulness. Remember, these were the same people that had been faithless for generations. 490 years, they had turned their back on God. They had turned away from Him, and they were living faithless lives. But aren't we thankful for a God who never gives up on us? Even 490 years of faithlessness, He's calling His people back home. He's restoring His people. He's inviting them back to receive. It's always, I want, to see us, I want us to see something about faithfulness today. One, there is an answer and a call for us to be faithful. God wants his people to be faithful. He wants us to respond in faithfulness. He wants us to live faithful lives to him. But we live with this tension and reality that we're not always faithful. We've all been unfaithful, just like the Jews, just like the Israelites were. We have found ourselves unfaithful, but this is the good news. God wants us to be faithful, and for us to be faithful, we have to be sandwiched in God's faithfulness. Uh, this, I'm going to unpack this a little bit. This is how my mind was working a little bit this week. Our faithfulness is always sandwiched between God's faithfulness. In other, in other words, we can't be faithful. We can't love. It was God's love that allows us to love. He, it, we only love because he first loved us. We can only respond to him because of his faithfulness, not our faithfulness. And God initiates things. He starts things. He's always the initiator. He's always the starter. If you want to put it in this context, he asked us out on the date first. We didn't ask him. When people said, I found Jesus, that's really not a true statement. We didn't find Jesus. Jesus was never lost. I mean, you can take that out of that movie Fargo or whatever. Jesus was never lost. He, I didn't know Jesus was lost. Jesus was never lost. We were lost. He found us. We responded. We responded to his faithfulness. Our faithfulness is always sandwiched between his faithfulness, meaning he initiates it, he starts it on the front end. But in those mixes like the Jews that were faithful, unfaithful, faithful, unfaithful, sandwiched between that is us. On the other end end of that is also God's faithfulness because God is always faithful. God is a faithful God. He can't not be anything else. So he starts it, he initiates it on the front end, and praise God, he finishes and completes the job on the back end. I love the scripture that says, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. It's good news because we don't have the power to complete that faithful work on our own. God is the one who finishes the work in us. So here we are, chapter 8. I want us to see that there's an initiation, there's a front end of God's faithfulness, then the people respond, and there's a back end that he completes the work. So uh, we got to, in order to do that, we got to back up to chapter 7, the last part of it. We didn't hit this last week, but verse 27 of Ezra says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. Ezra is reminding them that God's been faithful to their parents, to their grandparents, and to their great-grandparents. Praise the Lord if you have some family in your life, parents or grandparents that demonstrated faithfulness. And if you didn't have that benefit, you can be the start of a faithful 
line of people who, and, and family that's walking with God. He's saying, praise be the Lord, the God of our ancestors, that God's been faithful. The God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was faithful to your, to your ancestors, to your past. He's faithful in your present, and he's going to be faithful in your pr- future. Who is put into the king's heart. We've talked throughout this this book of Ezra, how God is the one that moves hearts. God is the one who initiates. And once again, he has moved the king's heart. The king didn't decide this. He moved in the king's heart and the king responded. But the king's heart was moved by God to honor the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. This wasn't wasn't, uh, Israel's king. This was a foreign king. This was Persia's king. But he moved his heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, Ezra says, that's said all throughout Ezra, at least eight times that I count that it says that the hand of the Lord was on me. The hand of the Lord was on us. It's a beautiful thing to have the hand of the Lord on us. What is that? What is it? Can, who, who's that? Do special people have to get that? No. The hand of the Lord is God's grace. And his grace is for all of us. His grace has been extended to all of us to receive it. The hand of the Lord is God's grace. And, and Ezra is acknowledging God's grace that the hand of the Lord was on me. And because of that, because of that, I took courage. The wonderful thing about God's grace is it gives us courage. We once walked in shame. We walk, once walked in brokenness. We, we once walked with regret. But because of God's grace, we now walk with courage. And now we can walk with confidence. Not because what we have done, but because of God's grace and what he has done. This is good news. And this is the front end that God's initiating grace And then in chapter 8, verses 2 through 14, the people are responding. In chapter 2, 50,000 responded. And in chapter 8, you would think after all the victories, I mean, we have bandwagon Chiefs fans. I've seen some. There's some bandwagon Chiefs fans in here. You weren't liking the Chiefs until they started winning, and now you love them, and now you like them. There's some bandwagon, uh, you'd think there'd be some bandwagon followers in chapter 8. Because chapter 2 through chapter 7, they had experienced victory. They, they re, the temple's been rebuilt. Uh, th- that's just the beginning of what God's going to do in restoring the community and building up the walls that will happen in Nehemiah. God's, God's, God started a great victory. They came, the, some of them came back and gave a great report. Hey, the temple's been rebuilt. We're on our way. Jerusalem is ours. We all need to return. And you would have think that Ezra, being the great leader, the great coach that he was, the great spiritual leader, the great pastor that he was, you would have thought that everyone with the victories that they saw that the others had, that they'd be all lining up to say, we're with you. We're going. All two million of us, we're going now. That didn't happen. In fact, there was even less that responded this time. Add it all up. Scholars add this up. The the heads of the families, if you include the women and children, it's about 5,000 that return the second time in chapter 8. 50,000 in chapter 2, 5,000. All together, the 2 million, less than 3%. Less than 1%. Less than a half a percent uh, uh, the second time around returned. You would have thought that 
man, the victories and, and the great leader that multitudes would go on, but instead multitudes stayed behind. Why? I think they became in, in love with, the, with their religion and their ease of life. They became comfortable in captivity. This wasn't like when the Jews were in Egypt and they were beaten and they were mistreated and they needed a Moses to let my people go. No, they were in captivity, but for the most part, if they lived by the Babylonian uh, laws and rules, if they honored those things, then they had a good existence. They probably were able to build some wealth and, and raise up families, and, and it probably, was, probably went well. They got comfortable in captivity. And sometimes we can get comfortable in our own captivity. We can get captive in our dysfunction. There may be dysfunction taking place in, in our homes or in our marriages, but it's just comfortable. We've gotten comfortable with it. And God may be calling us out and saying, I have something better for you, but you got to move. you got to respond. But we're like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of used to this. I, I know it's not great, but uh, it, it's, I'm at ease with it. We may fail to get counseling for our marriages or we may fail to get help with an addiction. Sadly, for many of us, for many people, it's just getting comfortable with the leisures of life. And we pursue the comforts more than we pursue the Christ. The next point this morning is this. God's invitation is to everyone, but not everyone responds. God's invitation is to everyone. But not everyone responds. In this case, in Ezra, less than 3% responded to the good things that God wanted to do in, in his people's lives. In John 3.16, the most famous verse in Scripture, for God so loved the world. That's everyone. God, God's for everybody. Uh, Peter says that he's not willing that any should die, but all should come to repentance. In Ezekiel, it said God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he's wanting all to repent. He wants everyone to return. He wants everyone to respond to him. And as a church, we want to give everyone an opportunity to respond to God's love and his mercy, to respond to the love of Jesus Christ. We, we want to do that. That's our heart's desire. It's, you might ask, why do we pray a prayer at the end of each of our service that's exactly as the same that we prayed the week before? Because we want to give people an opportunity to take that first step in walking towards Jesus and walking towards victory and returning to him. And so we don't pray that for our benefit, but why not just let them, the, the new, why, why don't we pray it all together? Because we want them to see that the hand of God is on them and we want them to take courage to respond. So there's a reason why we proclaim that together. And by the way, we proclaim it to remind ourselves too that we're in need of a Savior to confirm our profession of faith that we're in need of Jesus. In verse 2 through 14, it's a list. It's the honor roll of all those returned. I'm just going to share a couple names in verse 13. And really, it's not about the names. It's about three words. Of the descendants of Atticum, the last ones. That just jumped out to me because the last ones, these were the last to join the party. These were the last to join the group. The, 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 the opportunity had been given and people responded, but the ones that responded last, they got the same recognition that everyone else. They were included in the list of those who were honored. And I just want to encourage us that it's never too late to decide to follow Jesus. I don't care how old you are and what you've done, it's never too late. It comes at different times. If we'll respond to him, we still get to make the list.
For me, it was 10 years old when I responded to the love of Jesus Christ. For my dad, it was 19 when he took a turn on Main Street. For, for his dad and my grandfather was 72 years old near the end of his life. God is calling his people. He's wanting them to return home. Have you responded to God's invitation to return to him? Then Ezra chapter 8 verse 15. Now we're ready to roll, right? We got all the momentum. We know who's going with us. We've had some good victories. Now we're going to go get more victories because God wants more for us. So we're going to go after it. And this is what happens in verse 15. I assembled them at the canal that flows toward Avatha. And we camped there three days. And when I checked among the people and the priest, I found no Levites there. We have some more no-shows. <laughs> we got some more that didn't show up that were supposed to be there. It's important that the Levites, we had to have the Levites. Now, not everyone has to go, but we need the Levites here because they're the teachers of God's law. They're the ones that teach the people uh, the ways of God, and they, they're the ones that intercede for the people. And there was not one Levite or one pastor, if you will. There was not one teacher that had signed up to go on the trip. So they had another 5,000, but they're like, man, when we get back to Jerusalem, if we just go back there to build homes and build the city and build the walls, but we don't have a spiritual foundation, we're still sunk. We're just bringing Babylon back to Jerusalem. We want, we want God in Jerusalem. We want God in the center of this. And we need, uh, the Levites were, were instructed to, to carry that, to carry that responsibility. And I don't know, it just maybe seems to me that maybe some of the Levites got comfortable in Babylon. Maybe some of the Levites got comfortable in captivity. Maybe their synagogues were full. Maybe the offerings were large. Maybe everything seemed to be going well in Babylon, so why would I want to leave my comforts when everything is going well here? When they had a chance to return and be restored, they settled for religion. I wonder how many good people today settle for religion over a relationship. I wonder how many people today settle for going to church rather than becoming the church and being the church. For the church is not a building. The church is a people gathered around the name of Jesus Christ, professing our, our need for him, our, our need for him as our Savior and Lord. I wonder how many people settle for going to church rather than becoming the church and being the church. In this case, no Levitical priest had been found at first, but Ezra's like, it's worthless for us to go home if we don't set a spiritual foundation. We got to get some. So in Ezra, chapter 8, verses 16 through 20, I'm not going to read that all to you. You can kind of come here. You can read it fast if you want to. Uh, but the main point is this. He went searching for priests, for Levites to come back and to go with them on this journey. And when it was all said and done, you can see it in, uh, I think it's verse 18, they found 38 priests and they found out, they found 220 uh, temple workers that would take that responsibility that when they got back to Jerusalem, they would lay a spiritual foundation. They would teach God's word. They would teach God's law, enter the Holy of Holies, do, do the sacrifices for the people. Today, we don't need priests to intercede for us. We don't need animal sacrifices for us because we have the great high priest in Jesus Christ. 
we have the ultimate and final and complete sacrifice that Jesus did on the cross for us. So we don't have to go through a priest. Excuse me. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to do sacrifices. We have the ultimate and final sacrifice in Christ and the great high priest in him. But they needed him. And now the priests and temple servants, the people were ready. They'd found some. They were going to go on this trip. And in verse 21, this is where it begins. There by the Avaha Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. This is maybe something kind of familiar to you. Um, some of you maybe grew up like I did and you grew up and when you went on a long vacation, you went on a long trip, what, what'd you do? Your parents, they prayed. They prayed for a safe trip. They prayed for a safe journey. They prayed for, they prayed for protection. And we continued that on. Heather and I continued that on with our family because it's what she was taught. It's what we were taught. So before we go on a long trip or long vacation, we would pray for the kids when they were little. And when the girls got older and they were old enough, we'd say, one of you want to pray? And one of them would pray. And we'd ask God to bless us and protect us and bring us back safely. It's not a bad prayer. And my mom went another step to that. She added another added protection to that. Um, after my dad prayed or my mom prayed, she would say, hang on, Roy. She'd open up the car. She'd walk a few steps over to the nearest tree, break a branch off that tree, just a twig, a switch is what they called it. And she would bring it back and she would sit down, shut the door. She'd put it underneath the seat. She'd look at my dad and say, just in case. I had an older sister, and you know siblings, they fight in the back of the car. I was that kid that was back in that windshield when you didn't have seat belts, and I was just back there, and my sister got the brunt of most of that. But the point is, we prayed. We prayed when we went on these trips. That God's people, it's, good, it's a good thing to pray. It's a good thing to pray first in anything that we do to start with, with, with prayer. And they had prayed for a safe trip, and so in verse 22, we're going we're gonna to begin to see why. I was ashamed, Ezra said, I was ashamed to ask the king... For soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him but his great anger is against all who forsake him. Ezra had been bragging on God. You can never go wrong, by the way, bragging on God. You can never go wrong saying how good he is. Ezra was not wrong to do that. But Ezra had put a lot on God, and his, he was about to have to put his money where his mouth was because it wasn't wrong. It wouldn't have been wrong for him to ask the king for help. The king was favorable towards him. He's the one that said, yep, go back to your people. You go do this. I'm, what, what do you need? And he was like, God's got this. And so now he's kind of backed into a corner because he's like, I've been saying God's got this. It's kind of like what we do sometimes. We put incredible, beautiful sayings on our walls in our office or in our, in our rooms or in, around our house or even in our cars, and they're beautiful, they're poetic, they sound really good. But then when, when things hit the fan, do we really believe it? Are we really going to live it? And Ezra was in a little predicament here. He could have asked the king. The king was in favor of him, wanted to help him, but He'd put God's reputation on the line. And rather than risk God's reputation, he chose to risk and have faith in God that God would protect him. And we see in verse 
23, they decided to go it alone and go only with God. It's not wrong, again, to do that. My, one, of my favorite verse is Proverbs, one of my favorite verses is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. It doesn't say don't use your understanding. God has given us a brain. He's given us the ability to think and and be analytical and think logistically. There's some things that we go to pray for God, and God's like, don't bring that to me. That would be dumb if you did that. How dumb would that be? And I think there'd be other things that God said, you don't need to bring that to me. That's just wisdom. That's just wise. I've given you a mind of Christ. I've given you, I've given you a good mind to think with. Use your brain. Use your thinking. But don't lean on it. Don't, don't use it as a crutch. I mean, only lean on it. Don't use it as a, as a, uh, as a crutch. And so they, they prayed. They asked God to help. And then in verses 24 through 27, I'm going to summarize this for us for the sake of time. You can read it on your own or read it up here as it kind of goes through. But basically, 24 through, 20, uh, through 25 tells us, or 27 tells us why that they were concerned, why they were debating whether they needed the king's protection or not. Because all the things, all the valuables they were getting ready to take equated in today's terms of about $5 million dollars. If you were responsible for taking $5 million across enemy territory, across bandits, those who were going to, who stealed and were, were not for you, and it was about a 130-mile trip, and it was going to take nine or ten days on foot, there's a reason why they prayed. There was a reason why Ezra was going, should I ask the king for help, or should I say, yep, God said he would take care of this, I'm going to trust in God. There, there was a reason why, there was a reason for their concern. In verses 28 through 34, we see that these same priests, he said, I said to them, you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. He's basically saying, hey, this is how much you're going with, five million, and this is what I expect you to return with, five million. I'm, I'm putting you in charge of this. And when you get to Jerusalem, we're going we're gonna to look at it all, and we're going to see if everything that I gave you responsibility for, you, you were trusted with, that you could be trusted with it. And he, and he put this responsibility, I'm going to kind of summarize this. He put this responsibility on the leaders, on the Levites, on the priests. He put them in charge of, of the worldly wealth. And his purpose was in this. I'm getting ready to send you, who was reluctant to go in the first place, but we found you, now you're going. I was re- you were reluctant to go, but now you're going to be in charge of greater spiritual and greater things that are more eternal and more important than the things that are temporal. And five million is a big potatoes here on this earth, but it's no big deal to God. Five million is no big deal to God. And he's saying, before I can trust you with the big things, the eternal things, the most important things, I need to be able to trust you with worldly things. So there's just two more lessons or things I took away from this passage I'm just going to share with you now for those that you got to fill in the blank or you don't feel complete if you don't. Number one is this, a small band of believers in the hand of God is no match for the devil's bandits. There's a place in there where he said, hey, God led us through safely. 
through, the, through, through our enemies, through the bandits. And a small band of believers is a powerful thing in the hands of God. And the devil's bandits is no match for it. What does that mean for us? We're better together. We need each other. There are no Lone Ranger Christians that do well. Band of believers, we're meant to lean on each other. When we're going through tough times, when we're on mountaintops, we're meant to band together. And when believers band together, ooh, watch out. The enemy can't touch us when believers band together. When, when darkness is exposed to the light, the enemy loses all power and all our control. But when we keep it alone and to ourselves and we hide our sins and we keep it from others, then that's where we find ourselves powerless. We found ourselves in shame and brokenness. But when we band together with other believers in life groups, in Bible studies, in the church, when we band together as believers, we can't be stopped. The devil's bandits is no match for the band of believers in the hands of God. The second part of this is they were entrusted to take worldly wealth. And at the end, before they were going to be entrusted with the spiritual leadership of Jerusalem and God's people, before they were going to be entrusted, God wanted to see, I mean, why not have the bankers be in charge? Why not have to be the finance people? Why not have them be in charge? He had the priests and the pastors, the ones that that were reluctant to go in the first place, that they had to go recruit and say, hey, you're going to be in charge of leading important things, not, not earthly things, but spiritual things and eternal things. And if I'm going to trust you with eternal things, I got to know I can trust you with the small things, with the little things, with the worldly things. And I thought of the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. I wish I had time to share the whole parable, but Jesus said this at the end of it. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? True riches are eternal things. True riches are the things of God, not the earthly things. If God's saying, hey, if I'm going to trust you with eternal things and things that really matter, I got to be trust. I got to trust you. I got to be able to test you and trust you with the the worldly things. And this is the last thing: before God trusts you, He will test you. Before God trusts you, He will test you. Maybe you've been in church for a long, long time, and you're following God. God loves you. You love God. You received His grace. It's free. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's given. But there is something God wants more for you. He wants you to trust in Him. And, and how do we show our trust on this side of heaven? We show it in the things that matter to us. By trusting God with our marriage. By trusting our kids to Him who, that we love so much. By trusting our grandkids to Him that we love so much. By trusting our worldly wealth and giving to Him first. God's saying, do you trust me? And some of us aren't trusting God with our money. I don't like to say these things, but some of us don't trust God with our money, and God's saying, I got bigger things for you, eternal things for you. I got plans for you, but I got to know that I can trust you. So God will often test us to show that he, if he can trust us. In the same way, I believe, in the same way back, it's not an issue of people not loving God. It's a matter of people not trusting God. 
when we trust God with our wealth, with our finances, when we give to him first, when we give our family first, when we give our, when our marriage first, when we give our jobs first, when we recognize all of it's from him, none of, it, none of it's ours, we're just stewards of what he's given to us. There's times that God has called, I believe, Heather and I to trust in him. When we went into ministry, nearly 1999, how many ever years ago that was, um, you know I didn't like selling insurance. It wasn't my favorite thing in the world, but I did like payday. I did like commission checks. The other days I didn't enjoy so much. Heather and I together that year when we felt like God was calling us into the ministry, it was to take one-third of the salary that we'd been used to receiving. And I think that was a test of God to say, can I trust you with more important things? And I don't have time to tell you my second story I told in the first service, but I'll just say this. God can be trusted. We can trust him. And sometimes he's going to test you to see if he can trust you with things that are much greater than the things on this earth, but eternal things and bigger things that he wants for you to do for his kingdom. Do you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, this morning I pray as we receive communion in just a moment, if there's one word I want us to receive today as we receive the elements, it's faithfulness that you've been faithful. You were faithful to initiate and start a relationship with us. You're inviting us to respond to that. And when we respond to your faithfulness, you will finish it on the backside. You will complete the work you started in us as long as we keep looking to you, as long as we keep our faith in you and our trust in you, not in ourselves, not in our good deeds, not in our failures, not in our successes, but Lord, trust in you and you alone. So today, Lord, I pray that we'd receive this communion with faith, with gratitude, with celebration for the faithful God that loves us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning.